Hebrews 12. I'll begin in verse 3 and read through verse 13. Hebrews 12, verse 3. Hear the word of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. You have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children, my son, Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If ye endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chastens not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye illegitimate children, and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? That's the Father, God the Father. For they, that's our earthly father, verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But God, for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands that hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Lord God, bless this last message tonight and teach us how to cope with affliction by considering Jesus, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we just read to you, no one likes affliction. Verse 11, no one likes affliction. But everyone faces affliction. Isn't that true? We're sinners and therefore, we will all be afflicted. Now, tonight, I'm not going to try to talk to you about all the different kinds of afflictions you can go through. We each have our own set, our own set of afflictions. I'm not going to stress with you that all affliction is ultimately traceable to our tragic fall in Adam. You know that, I trust. No no fall in Adam, no affliction. You also know that all affliction is sent by a wise, fatherly God. 
I trust you know that. You know, perhaps, that the whole book of Job and the Puritans never tire of teaching us that the important thing is not the amount of affliction we receive in this life, but how we respond to whatever affliction God is pleased to send our way. But that's not the way we think by nature. It's not the way our society functions. Just let me give you one quick example. New Year's Day, what do we say to each other? Happy New Year's. What do we mean by that? I think most people mean, I hope you have a wonderful year and you have very few afflictions. So you can be happy. So the less afflictions you have, the happier you are. The Puritans would say to each other, Blessed New Year. What's the difference between blessed and happy? Happy means I just hope you're happy with all your circumstances, happy with your children, happy with your grandchildren, happy with your work, happy with your spouse, etc. Blessed means you are internally happy. Truly happy in the Lord, no matter what happens to you in your circumstances around you. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, no matter what happens. So when a Puritan said, blessed new year, he didn't mean to say, I hope you have very few afflictions this year. Everything goes your way. He meant to say something like this. I hope and pray that whatever afflictions our sovereign, gracious God deems fitting to put upon you this year, that you will, by grace, submit to them as coming from the hand of your Heavenly Father. See the difference? Is life all about wanting to avoid as much affliction as possible? Or is life about Submitting all my afflictions to the Lord. And see, that's exactly where we struggle. Because we're in a very pampered society. We have it probably better in terms of outward circumstances than any society before us, ever. And especially in North America. Many of you probably think you're middle class. Well, I got news for you. compared to the rest of the world, we're probably all in the high class. (laughs) None of us have to worry about where our next meal is coming from. We're spoiled. And you see, the point is this. If you're a true Christian, God sends the right amount of afflictions to you that you need to have to be sanctified and matured and made fit for the master's use, and for everlasting glory. And that's easy to say yes to when we're not in affliction. To prepare for affliction before it comes, it's hard. To be truly thankful for affliction after it's over, that can be hard, maybe even harder. 
But to be responding Christianly when we're in the furnace of affliction, that's the hardest. And that's what I want to grapple with tonight. Because that's the real question. The real question of a Christian is, when I'm in that furnace of affliction, how can I respond like Christ? How can I respond Christianly while I'm in the furnace? Now, I need to tell you that the talk I'm giving you tonight actually was a letter, originally a letter that I wrote to myself. I'm a a writer. I feel called to write, and for me, I feel closest to God when I write. So I wrote this letter to myself 30 years ago. And... uh, to encourage myself to respond rightly. I had tried many things. I, I was in affliction, heavy affliction, heavy, heavy affliction for a long time. And I tried all kinds of techniques and ideas and thoughts to cope. And finally, I was a slow learner. Finally, I believe God taught me the very best way to cope with affliction. And it's in Hebrews 12, verse 3. And really, I'm going to preach it to you tonight in two words. Four, and then these two words. Consider him. Consider him. That's it. That's the way to cope with affliction. Now... What do I mean by that? Well, I want to give you 10 things. I tell my students not to have more than four points in the sermon. I've got 10 tonight. But they're going to be short. And what I want you to understand is that considering Christ is the best way to help you in the midst of any troubles and trials you face. You cope with suffering by considering him in 10 ways. Number one, you consider the passion of Christ. Passion coming from passio in Latin, which means sufferings. Consider what he endured, we saw last hour. If Jesus was the sufferer par excellence, while wholly innocent... And I'm at least partly guilty in my life. Even though I'm not guilty of all the sufferings that people put upon me, perhaps. But I'm at least partially guilty. Who am I to complain? He bore much more for me than I'll ever bear for him. But also, consider his passion in this angle... That the Bible tells me, Hebrews 4.15, that there's not one affliction that I will ever endure, one temptation I will ever face, that he has not, in essence, faced already. He was tempted in all points, like as we are. All means all. Now, when we get very sorely afflicted, we're prone to say, 
I'm the only one. I'm, I'm afraid I'm the only one that's ever gone through this. But no, you're not. Jesus was there. Have you ever faced the affliction of your close familiar friends deserting you? Well, Jesus did. Have you ever faced the loss of life of, of a really close loved one? Jesus did. Shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. Where was he? Graveside of Lazarus, whom he loved. He was tempted, tried in all points, all points, like as you are, yet without sin. He never sinned. So when you sin in the midst of affliction and you carry those sins to him, he has the reservoir, the capacity, the merits to wash away your sin through his innocent sufferings on your behalf. So consider his passion, his pain. Consider that there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man, not only, but also that is common to Christ. And God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation, with the trial, make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, I've discovered in my life that when you meditate on the sufferings of Christ, when you're suffering, it somehow makes your sufferings less severe. I hope I'm not just giving you psychological nonsense here. But let me, let me explain something to you. As a pastor, it's not uncommon for people to call me and say, Pastor, I've got cancer. I found out today from the doctor I've got cancer. I once had a time when I had 15 people in my church have cancer at one time. It was, it was unbelievable. And it was hard. Oh, it was hard. And then a lady called me up one day, 82 years old. And she said, Pastor, I'm in the hospital. I've got cancer. Need chemo right away. And I went up to the hospital. I've been seeing so many people with cancer. I ducked in a side room before I went into a room and just asked for the Lord for strength to minister to one more person in great need. I felt so sorry for her. She had recently lost her husband and now cancer. I walked into the room. I said, how are you doing? Are you in a lot of pain? And she said, now, Pastor, don't you go feeling sorry for me. I've got cancer. I've got children all around the country. I didn't bring them up right. I got converted later. And they're all going to come and see me. I can witness to them for a last time in my life. Don't feel sorry for me. I look at this woman. I go, this is incredible. What a beautiful way to cope with this affliction. Or... What will happen is people will get cancer, dear children of God, and they'll be just totally discombobulated. They're overwhelmed. The word cancer is probably the most dreaded word in the English language. Shouldn't be that way. Sin should be the most dreaded word. Puritans used to say there's more evil in sin, the smallest sin, than there is in the greatest affliction. But... Human nature being what it is, probably cancer is the word we hate the most. 
And then after they're discombobulated for a little while, the day comes when they have to go get chemo and they sit in a room full of people waiting for their first chemo. And what happens? They call me up. I say, how did it, or I call them up. How did it go? You know, pastor, I've heard this so many times. I looked around that room. I looked around that room and I saw that there were a lot of people much worse off than I. I really should be thankful that I don't have it as bad as they are. They do. You see, they compare themselves with other people. And they realized there's a lot of people that are in more pain than I'm in. So, not just in these big afflictions I went through, but even sometimes in smaller afflictions. I'll tell you a secret. When I get into a dentist chair and a dentist is drilling on my tooth, it's not pleasant, is it? So what do I think about? I've gotten in this habit. I just start thinking about the sufferings of Christ for me. While he's drilling. I'm, I'll tell you honestly. I start thinking about the sufferings of Christ. That drilling is not that bad. Because he... He suffered a thousand times more than me. But it's not only for small pains like that. What I'm saying is, when you're in affliction, focus on what Jesus has done for you in afflictions that were a thousand times worse. And remember that he has a purpose for the affliction he's given you to sanctify you and prepare you for glory. And that will help you. Consider his passion. Consider that he endured contradiction of sinners against himself. Lest you be faint and wearied in your mind. That's number one. Number two, consider the power of Christ. Being infinite God-man, Jesus received power on earth to bear infinite sufferings on your behalf. If you're a believer. And through the merit of those sufferings, he now receives royal power in heaven from his Father to rule and strengthen you in all your sufferings. In other words, whatever afflictions he deems fitting to place upon your shoulders, they will be tailor-made to fit your shoulders. You will not be destroyed by them. You will not drown by them. Don't be alarmed, but just look to him for strength. They're designed for you. And he's powerful. He's all powerful. He'll bring you through. And don't be ashamed if you have very heavy afflictions. Some people still today, despite the book of Job, even some Christians, think if somebody has a lot of afflictions, oh, God must be against them. Or you might think that of yourself. Well, the whole book of Job is saying you can have a lot of afflictions. It doesn't mean you're a greater sinner than anyone else. When I was 13, I went to work for my dad as a carpenter for the first summer of my life. And uh, my brothers were 16 and 19. They're, at that time, at least, their shoulders were broader than mine. They were stronger than I was. I was a skinny little kid. And they would flip bundles of shingles on their shoulder, carry them up the ladder, slap them on the roof like nothing. 
I came by and I picked up one of those bundles. Man, that thing was heavy. I could barely get it on my shoulder. Then I started going up the ladder and I was like shaking. I thought I felt like I was going to fall backwards. I started to panic. I kept on going. I was determined. I finally got it up there and put that thing on the roof. Wow. I made it. I came back down. My dad was watching the whole thing. And he pulls me aside. He said, son, next time, he said, take half a bundle. And when you're older like your brothers, you can take a whole bundle. But your shoulders aren't designed yet for a whole bundle. And you see, that's the way God promises he operates with his people. He won't give you more than you can bear, 1 Corinthians 10 says. He'll give you the strength to bear it. So don't be proud of slender shoulders. And at the same time, don't ask for more affliction. But beg for broader shoulders exercised in the weight room of Jesus' providential leadings. Actually, verse 11 refers to that when it says, No affliction for the present seems to be joyous but grievous, but nevertheless afterward it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness to them who are exercised thereby. The Greek word is gymnasium, from which we get gymnasium. God brings us into his gymnasium and he firms and fits us for the afflictions he's going to send upon us. And he's powerful to do that from heaven. The Puritan George Downame intended to convey exactly this when he said, The Lord does not measure out our afflictions according to our faults, but according to our strength. And doesn't look at what we have deserved, but at what we are able to bear. So, trust him. Trust his power. Consider the power of Christ. Number three, consider the presence of Christ. The presence of Christ. He's at no time absent from you. Even when your faith lacks direct, active exercise to grasp him. Heidelberg Catechism says it's so beautiful in Lord's Day 18. It basically asks the question, Aren't we being abandoned when Christ went back to heaven and and we can no longer see him on earth? And the answer is no. He's at no time absent from you, but he abides with you, with his Godhead, his grace, his wisdom, and his spirit. I love that answer. He's with you. He's close beside you, even in heavenly places. Psalm 139 says, the darkness and light are both alike to him. You think when you're in darkness, oh, he doesn't see you. His eyes penetrate the darkness. Darkness and light are both alike to him. And how comforting this presence of Christ is. Because you see, in all your dark afflictions, your high priest retains you in his eye, in his heart, on his shoulders, in your hands, his hands, and in his ongoing high priestly intercessions, as we've already seen. He ever lives to make intercession for you. He's always present. He will never forget you, even when you forget him. Your unbrotherliness to Christ never unbrothers this precious elder brother from you. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, Proverbs 18.24 says. Even when you cannot see it, 
Even when you cannot feel it. He's whispering to you in midnight seasons. What I do now you know not. But you shall know hereafter. So take heart. The Jesus who never failed you in yesterday's afflictions. But gave you instead extra tokens and reminders through his word of his care. Is still present to give you today's strength. And just as waves are cut down to melodious whimpers at shore's reality, so they only break over your ankles rather than drown you, so he will break down your waves of tomorrow's impossibilities as, not before, as they break in on the beachhead of your life. So wait on your ever-present Savior. He will not let you down. He who is the same yesterday, today, and forever will bring you through. Consider the presence of Christ. I will never, no, never, no, never forsake you. In the Greek language, if there's more than a double negative, which is a strong positive, it breaks the boundaries of Greek grammar. In Hebrews 13, that text basically says this, I will never, 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 never forsake you. Five, five negatives. Which means a strong, 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 strong positive. And the best way to translate it is, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake you or leave you. And Why? Why? Five times. Because we're so prone to think that God will forsake us when we're in the furnace. But he won't. He won't. Consider the presence of Christ. Four, consider the patience and perseverance of Christ. Patience and perseverance of Christ. You know, there's a form of Chinese torture in ancient times where they would put a prisoner in a, in a, st- a block and put, it, put the block kind of around his neck and tighten it so your head couldn't move. And then there'd be a dripping faucet. You'd be laying on your back, a dripping faucet, one drop at a time on your forehead. It's called Chinese torture. First 100 drops. You think, oh, this is no problem. 500? 1,000? 2,000, you're going crazy. 5,000, you can go insane. Just one drop of water on your forehead again and again and again. And you see, that's what happens with affliction that doesn't go away. You feel like it's going to drive you crazy. You feel like you can't bear it one more day. How can I hang on to the end? I can't do it. I can't go on, Lord. Oh, yes, you can. Jesus, having loved his own, loved them to the end. To the end. He went on. He went on through Gethsemane. He went on crawling as a ground, on the ground as a worm and no man, sweating great drops of blood. He went on to Gabbatha. He went on to Golgotha. Every place he went, Jesus, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Jesus, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Blood drop by blood drop for six long hours, he poured out his life. So how do you keep on going when you can't keep on going? 
you persevere through the perseverance of Christ. So that you can say with Paul, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Or you look back on your past life. You say, I could never go through that again. Oh, yes, you could. By the perseverance of Christ, by the patience of Christ, he could bring you through it all again. Yes, but it's so long. That's true. But he promises there shall surely come an end and thy expectation shall not be cut off. Leave the timing to him. Leave the guidance to him. Yes, but I feel like David. I feel like I'm going to perish one day by the hands of Saul. For 16 years. David's anointed king. And Saul's chasing him from den to cave. This promise will never be fulfilled. Lord, I can't take it anymore. Yes, you can. Because Jesus has persevered too long to let you go. He's done too much for you to let you go. He will keep you. I give to them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. You know, there's a beautiful quaint story of an old Scottish woman who was on her deathbed. And Ebenezer Erskine, I hope you've heard of him, a great forefather, was her minister. And those were the days when ministers commonly tested their people on their deathbeds, made sure they're ready for heaven. And so he came to her and he said, uh, my friend, how are you doing? Oh, she said, I'm doing fine. He said, are you ready to meet the Lord? Oh, absolutely, pastor. Oh, he said, on what grounds are you ready? Oh, she said, I believe in Christ alone for salvation. What does that mean to you? Well, it means, pastor, that... uh, He holds me in the palms of his hand. And I shall never perish. Oh, he said. But what happens if you slip through his fingers? Still testing her. It's impossible, pastor. Well, why is it impossible? Well, because of what you have told us. What have I told you? Well, you've said we can't slip through his hands because... We are one of his fingers. We're part of the body. Ah, good, he said. (laughs) You passed my test. You see, the believer is part of the body of Christ. Part of the body of Christ. He'll persevere with you to the end because you're part of him. You're united to him. He cannot let you go. He cannot fail. He cannot desert. David will become king. His promises will be fulfilled. So your trials may alarm you, but they will not destroy you. Your crosses are God's royal way to your royal crowning in glory. Consider the perseverance of Christ. Number five, consider the prayers of Christ. How often he has prayed for you. How often he prays for all of his own. How often he has said, Father, thou hearest me always. You see, his prayers ought to encourage you to pray. If your prayers are taken up into his prayers, they cannot fail. So if you pray for Jesus' sake, I have a friend, by the way, he always begins his prayer. Oh, Lord, hear us for Jesus' sake. Instead of saying Jesus' sake at the end, it's it's quite all right, of course, to say Jesus' sake because you're 
Referring back to your whole prayer. But he says, I can't even begin to approach Jesus or God without going through Jesus. So I say immediately, for Jesus' sake, hear my prayers. You see, so you bring all your needs daily for Jesus' sake to your praying high priest who hears your every whisper, who sanctifies your imperfect prayers and presents them through the salt of his own sufferings back to his father to be accepted in his father's sight. And so let Jesus' prayers motivate your prayers and bring your prayers to him for acceptance by the Father. So when you grow drowsy or sloppy in prayer, pray aloud or write down your prayers or find a quiet place to walk in the fresh air to pray. Just don't stop praying. Don't stop praying when affliction comes. A prayerless affliction. A prayerless affliction is like an open sore ripe for infection. A prayer full affliction, for Christ's sake, is like an open sore ripe for the balm of Gilead, the healing ointment of Jesus' blood. Pray. And bring your prayers to his prayers. Consider his prayers for you. Number six. Consider the promises of Christ in his word. Consider that all the promises of God are yea and amen in him. Consider that the word of God is honey to sweeten all of our afflictions with the promises of God. If you want to sweeten your affliction with the word of God, one of the old Puritans said, if you want to digest your afflictions, really accept them and embrace them, Put on the honey of God's promises and they'll go down sweetly. You see, you take promises. You take promises. Maybe promises that have been made special to you. You paste them to your computer or to your refrigerator. And you read them over and over and over again. You plead them. Or even promises that haven't been made special but that are rich. Promises like... All things work together for good to them that love God. I love God. This must be working together for good. How I don't understand. But I plead that promise, Lord. Or blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life. Which the Lord has promised to them that love him. One of our three children is of quite quiet disposition. And uh, she doesn't talk much. She's friendly, she's warm, but in a crowd, she's in the background. Even in the home, she doesn't talk as much as the other children did. But one time she picked up on me that I was kind of discouraged, kind of down. Not much fruit in my ministry lately. Some afflictions were impinging themselves upon me. Some people left the church that were dear to me. It was hard. I tried to hide it from the kids. But she, she, she picked up on it. And she took some eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper. And there were five or six promises that she remembered that were very precious to me. And she wrote them on those pieces of paper. Then she taped them all together. And where I would come down from the upstairs bedroom in the morning, I'd walk through the hallway into the kitchen. She put them, she taped it to the top of the hallway thing. And and then she put all those promises all the way down to the ground. So I had to walk right through them to get into the kitchen. 
And I looked at those promises. It was such an encouragement. That sweet daughter. In fact, I kept the promises up there for about a couple of weeks. Anybody, anybody who had to walk through into the kitchen had to walk through them. Use the promises. They're more sure than the circumstances are around you that are getting you down. Consider the promises of God. They are all yea and amen in Jesus. Number seven. Consider the plenitude, the plenitude of Christ. In him there is bread enough and to spare, Luke says. Just consider his names. You know, I have a book in my library. Here's the title. 280 names and titles of Jesus Christ. 280 names in the Bible. And every title, every title unveils the riches of Christ. Plead his names. Consider his prophetical office, his priestly office, his kingly office, his threefold office. He will teach you as a prophet. He will sacrifice for you and bless you as a priest. He will rule and guide you as a king. Consider his humiliation, exaltation. Consider the riches that are in Jesus. Consider that he is all and in all. There's plenitude. There's bread enough and to spare in Jesus. Consider his plenitude. And then number eight, consider his preciousness. You know, the Bible uses the word precious 75 times. Do you know what it uses the word precious for the most? For Jesus. Especially his precious blood. His blood is really the center of the Bible. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, from the closing of the gates of Eden to the opening of the gates of heavenly Zion, blood runs through Scripture, uniting all. All true believers find peace in the precious blood of Christ. Through his blood, the second Adam undid what the first Adam had undone and thereby reconciling sinners to God. So consider his blood, his precious blood. The capability of it. It redeems us. It justifies us. It even sanctifies us. With his stripes we are healed. And it preserves us and assures us and makes us victorious. And one day his blood will open heaven for us. His blood is precious. Consider it. You're made fit for heaven by the blood of Jesus. You enter heaven by the blood of Jesus. Number nine, consider the purposes of Christ. The purposes of Christ. He lived to do his Father's will, he lived to be sanctified through suffering. To merit salvation for you, dear believer. To present his church without spot or wrinkle to his father. In one word, his life was God-centered. And so that's what he does with your afflictions. He makes you center more on him. And for that reason, he does several things. Several, he has several purposes in mind. Number one, Deuteronomy 8 verse 2 says, I will afflict you to humble you. Affliction is humbling. We become small in our own eyes through affliction, don't we? That's a good thing. <laughs> We're far too prone to be proud. Then Zephaniah 
1 verse 12 says, through affliction, he teaches us what sin is. Isn't that true? When you're not afflicted, you tend to have low thoughts of sin. But when you're afflicted, you realize what sin is. That's a good thing. In Hosea 5 verse 15, we read that when we are afflicted, we will seek God early. You know, even atheists cry out to God sometimes when they're really afflicted. Oh, God, help me. They suddenly, whoops, I didn't believe in God. I, you know, but it, it comes out. But so a Christian. Oh, some days we forget God without while well, we still pray, but we really forget God. But when we're afflicted, we don't. Our priorities get straightened out. Affliction vacuums away the fuel that feeds our pride. John Bunyan said, God's people are like bells. The harder they're hit, the better they sound. Not easy. But God never promised you an easy life. He promised you a blessed life. So we learn more under the rod that strikes us than we do through the staff that comforts us. You discover the truth of Robert Layton's words. Affliction is the diamond dust, the diamond dust that heaven polishes its jewels with. And then, sanctified affliction also serves to keep you close to Jesus, close to his side. The shepherd takes up the lambs that are hurting and wraps them around his neck and carries them beside his beating heart. He makes you partaker of his suffering and his image, of his righteousness and holiness, this chapter says later, to conform you to him. So like Stephen, the stones that hit you only knock you closer to your chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ, opening heaven the wider for you. Affliction rubs the rust off of your locked heart or your backsliding heart, and it opens the gates of your heart afresh to your king's presence chamber to commune with him. Yes, the rod of affliction is God's pencil for drawing Christ's image more fully upon you. And one more purpose. Sanctified affliction serves to wean you from the world and to cause you to walk by faith. A dog bites strangers, not homeowners, most of the time. And perhaps affliction bites us so deeply because we're too little at home with the word and ways of God and too much at home with the world. Thomas Watson puts it so picturesquely when he says, God would have the world hang in your mouth like a loose tooth, which being easily twitched away, doth not much bother us. You see, in prosperity, we talk about living by otherworldly faith, but in adversity, by the grace of God, we live our talk. Consider the purposes of Christ. He's ripening you for glory. Which leads me to my last thought. Consider the plan of Christ. The plan of Christ. His plan is eternal glory. 
Not just for himself, but for you. He returned to his father differently than he came to the world. He returned with his blood-bought bride in his loins. His church, figuratively speaking, ascended into glory with him, accepted by the Father in the Beloved, Ephesians 1 says. So think more of God's eternal end, his eternal plan. Your afflictions are all pinpoints on the way to the eternal plan of come into glory. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And so our trials in this life are sometimes called in Scripture 10-day trials. Even if they last for 10 years, they're like 10 days compared to eternity. It's just a drop in the bucket. Our light afflictions, our light afflictions, says Paul, after he lists a whole stream of heavy afflictions, are not to be compared to the glory that awaits us. The 10 days here are preparation for an everlasting eternity to come. Affliction elevates our souls to heaven. It paves our way to glory, to a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Are you afflicted right now? Perhaps heavily? You've got some cross that's too big to carry out the door, as we heard in the last talk. Well, remember, your rainy days on earth are nearly over. Don't overestimate them. Think more of your coming crown, more of your eternal communion with God triune and saints and angels. Believe what the Puritan John Trapp said. He who rides to be crowned will not think much of a rainy day or two. As Frances Havergal wrote in her wonderful poetry, the future is coming. Light after darkness, gain after loss, strength after weakness, crown after cross, sweet after bitter, hope after fears, home after wandering, praise after tears, sheaves after sowing, sun after rain, sight after mystery, peace after pain, joy after sorrow, calm after blast, rest after weariness, sweet rest at last. Love after loneliness, life after tomb, After long agony, rapture of bliss, right was the pathway leading to this. So remember, this is not your home. We're just all renters here, just renters. Your personal mansion is reserved for you. Expect no heaven on earth, apart from some spiritual foretaste of glory. But trust that eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. The best is yet to come. Don't give up. Keep on. Keeping on. The shepherd's rod always has honey at the end. Don't despair. Your afflictions are imposed upon you By a fatherly hand of love in the context of grace. Not as you are too prone to think. By a punitive hand of judgment in the context of works. So, keep clinging to Paul's confession. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Consider Christ in all ten of these ways. And be of good courage. He shall strengthen thy heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord.
So I conclude tonight with just a, a quick illustration. You know how Persian rugs are made. The rug maker goes up a little ladder, gets above his workers beneath, and they have all colors of strings beneath him. This is the ancient way, at least. And he calls up for different colors of string. Also, the, the brown and the black strings that symbolize affliction. And he weaves them into the pattern. And the workers look up from underneath. It doesn't make any sense. All they see is a gnarled mess of loose strings hanging down. But then the day comes when the rug maker says, Workers, come up higher. And they climb the ladder. And instead of Persian rug workers, they never fail to be amazed. When they see this beautiful pattern with all the, the right nuances of colors, just a beautiful work of art, and the Persian rug, all the dark strings right in the right place to make the whole pattern absolutely stunningly beautiful and perfect. Oh, dear child of God, the day is coming. And God will say, my servant, my servant worker, come up higher. And when you enter that pearly gate of celestial bliss, and you see your whole life thrown before you as a rug, as a beautiful Persian rug, may I say it that way, and you'll see every affliction in the right place. If you didn't understand before, you'll understand then why you've needed every affliction you've ever had to make you that unique instrument of God, that peculiar object of His love, so that when you enter into glory, you will love Him with love unspeakable, and He will love you, having expended so much love upon you, unspeakably. And you will gaze upon Him, your beloved, and rejoice in Him forever. And you will cry out. The half of it was not told me. King of kings, priest of priests, prophet of prophets. You are all together lovely. You are far more beautiful than I ever imagined. Consider him. He'll bring you through. To glory. Forever. Hallelujah. Amen. Lord God, Lord God, who art Lord of every area of our lives, who makes no mistakes, please, Lord, comfort every one of thy children sitting here tonight who are in affliction. Trust, may they trust that thou art the fourth one walking in the midst of the burning fiery furnace, who art really the first one, who makes no mistakes and will bring them out with their hair unsinged and no hurt upon them. So help them not to give up, but to keep on keeping on, considering Jesus, looking to him, the author and finisher of our faith, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.